Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon here on a Mitch a Marathon Month, the holiday edition. It is the last of the holiday edition shows. Uh, I will get back to my regular schedule of Saturday and a Sunday starting next week. But uh, this one we've got Desmond Child. Singer-songwriter Desmond Child, of course, he has written some of the greatest hits for some of the greatest artists, including Living on a Prayer, You Give Love a Bad Name for Bon Jovi, I Was Made for Loving You for Kiss, Angel for Aerosmith, and I Hate Myself for Loving You, which Bon Jovi wanted, but Joan Jett got to do. Uh, I, of course, uh, interviewed Desmond uh, previously. This is interview number two, and it's, in fact, a little bit long. It's about 50-some minutes, so I won't keep you uh, too long on the uh, on the talk-ups, but uh, he does have a new album out. came out at the end of October called Desmond Child Live, where he performs some of the songs I mentioned uh, previously live, and uh, you also get to hear him do some of the songs he wrote for other bands including uh, La Vida Loca, Shake Your Bonbon, She Bangs, and and so on and so forth. So uh, just a fun collection. Definitely worth uh, checking out. And uh, while you're on the internet, uh, checking out the album, hopefully over at uh, Amazon.com and buying yourself a, a physical copy or, or any of the uh, music retailers, uh, head into your little URL space there and type in MitchLafon.com. I have owned the domain name for a couple of years now, but I've done absolutely nothing with it. But that is going to change. Uh, you know, I had this rant a while back about how aggregator news sites take your uh, interviews and just repurpose them and turn them into a clickbaity headline. And yet content providers like myself, and like, like I mentioned before, that metal show, Talking Metal... Uh, Decibel Geeks, uh, all those sites where they just grab the stuff. They they don't pay us. They just grab it and don't pay us. So you've got these aggregator sites, aggregator news sites, or aggregator news rock sites, if you want to be super precise, that put out all your content, take fans away from listening to your show, because after you read the content, you just go, oh, okay, I see what, okay, Paul Stanley said this, great. And you don't bother listening to the interviews, and Listening to the interviews and getting those those quote unquote spins, to use an old uh, terminology, on uh, YouTube, on Spotify, uh, that's that's where we make uh, that, that's where we monetize it. That's where we make a little bit of, of of money to make all of this stuff worthwhile. And those sites prevent that from uh, happening because they just steal your content. They, I mean, they they literally just steal your content. Uh, you know, so. Uh, and by the way, you, you'll you'll notice that some of my content or my content doesn't appear on a couple of the sites now, uh, because when you say, "Hey, could you pay me?" they go, "F F you," and you're like, "Oh, okay." Uh, so, anyway, so uh, I don't know why I turned all this into a negative, but uh, MitchLafon.com is going to come, and you can go there. There will be posting. Uh, you know, uh, listen, it's going to be a, a work in progress for a little bit until we get a rhythm going, but. Your press releases, your your news, your rock news, the interviews and all that will slowly start appearing and slowly be sort of a repository or a, a go-to place to get what you want to get. And instead of going, oh, where's Mitch? Oh, he's on Spotify. Oh, he's on YouTube. Oh, he's on... You just go to MitchLafon.com, 
and everything will be there and you'll be able to click array and go, oh, I want to listen to this on Spotify. Oh, I want to listen to this on Deezer. Oh, I want to listen to this on YouTube. And it'll be all for sort of user friendly. And, you know, um, I probably should have done this 15 years ago. Let's be honest. But the fact is, is that uh, a internet presence is important and getting paid is important. We can't keep doing this on a volunteer or a forced volunteer basis. And and that's what happens when some of the sites uh, grab their stuff. Now, there are other sites that provide original content and they supplement it with a article that uh, from me or from somebody else. And that's fine. That's great. I love that stuff. That That's everybody wins. But there are two sites in particular, and I'm not going to start naming names, uh, but they just grab your stuff mercilessly. And and by the way, when you write them and say, hey, by the could you, they don't answer you. So they grab your stuff and they don't even have the courtesy to reply to an email. Not, and not even bitching emails like, hey, I've got an important interview coming up. Actually, I could really use some help on this one. Could you do something? They don't even bother. They, ugh, Whatever. MitchLafon.com is coming up and uh, let's get right over to uh, the one, uh, the only, the terrific Desmond Child. We are speaking with a songwriter, Desmond Child. We have spoken once before, Desmond. It was absolute great chat, and I just said, you know what? Got to do it again. Got to do it again. So, <laughs> so bonjour. Happy. Bonjour, as we say in Montreal. Bonjour. Yes, so just before we started recording, I was telling you that I have this CD. You can hear it right here. I've got the Desmond Child live CD in front of me. I have been playing it all afternoon. I even made a playlist for my phone, and it is, and I can't swear, but it is effing fantastic. It's And, and I'll say this, and I'll add real quick. Some of the bands that you've worked with, I'm not a fan of, uh, which is fine. And But then I hear your versions here, and I go, you know what? There's all these songs are great, so I'm going to go back and rediscover the, the the versions that were done with the other bands and stuff because it it just it flows. It's it's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for saying so. So let's. I let's, you know I call I, I I call myself like the lead singer of the ultimate cover band of original songs. I know it's kind of funny that you, that in a sense you're covering these great songs by you know Cher um, and Bon Jovi and Aerosmith. And yet you wrote them. So, yeah, you're right. And um, in my playlist... I do weddings. I do weddings and funerals. <laughs> well, I am married, but I'm going to get remarried and invite you out just for that. But no, I, I, I also threw in two Lena Hall songs that Holly Knight had sent to me. Uh, so I've got this nice playlist with all of Desmond and a couple of bonus Lena Hall songs. But all right, let me... And you, you heard her version of I Hate Myself for Loving You, right? Lena Yes, on the album, of course, I did. Yeah. And, and she it rips it up. Oh my God! It's and she made it her own. It's completely different than Joan Jett's version. Well, okay. Let me ask you this, just real quick, because uh, Holly Knight sent me uh, Lena Hall doing a cover of, of "Space," which was done by Cheap Trick or, or Holly Knight's song, and another one that's unreleased. And then she shows up on yours. What is it about Lena Hall, and and why do not more people know her? Because she sings. I mean, I'm going to sound corny, but she sings like an angel. <laughs> well, first of all, she's a Tony winner for her role in Hedwig and the Angry Inch uh, a few years ago. And she's now starring in her own television series called Snowpiercer that's uh, being filmed right now in, 
in uh, in the Yukon or something like that. And um, she's um, you know just an incredible actress, and she also sings. I I discovered her when she was a chanteuse, a kind of wandering chanteuse in a kind of adult um, circus uh, called the uh, Spiegel World Tent. Uh, this tent was like, you know, 80 years old tent that traveled all around the world. And, you know, this kind of like off color humor and, you know, kind of sexy gymnastics. And she sang all the way through it. And I, I turned to my husband, Curtis, and I said, she's a star. All these other things, fant- fantabulous things are happening. Can't take my eyes and ears off of Lena Hall. No, you can't. She is a star. It's all right. Let me, I want to get into Lena. I want to get into what you said on the album before that about uh, John Bon Jovi heard the song and said, hey, F you, why didn't you give this to me? But I want to ask you this real quick. Uh, You have said on this album that John or Bon Jovi and Aerosmith were two of the bands you're most appreciative of because they made you feel part of the band. So, let me let me start there in terms of talking about them and why they made you feel more like the band than say Kiss did or Joan Jett did or Alice Cooper did. What what was it about Aerosmith and Bon Jovi where you just felt this different connection or a higher connection? I think that maybe fate was you know kind of pushing us together, and um, they had no reason to relate to me. I was older than they were. They were young, you know, Jersey studs, you know, and uh, completely hetero and, and um, you know, and playing really hard-edged music. But we got in there, and on the first day, I had, I had a title in my back pocket, You Give Love a Bad Name. And John looked at me. I mean, I don't think it was even 15 minutes into the, into the session, and I, I saw my first glimpse of the billion-dollar Bon Jovi smile. And he immediately said, shot through the heart and you're to blame. And then the three of us said, you give love a bad name. And we did our first high five, three, three way high five. And, uh, you know, never looked back. And we had chemistry together. We had a fate that was, that, that was, uh, leading us to each other. And, but I have that relationship with Paul Stanley of kiss. I never wrote with, with Gene, even though he's you know been very nice to me and 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 respectful and has said great things about me. My relationship was always with Paul. I was Paul's guy, so Paul and I also have that. I mean, I wrote like eighteen songs with Paul. Um, you know, among them, I was made for loving you, Heaven's on Fire. Oh my God, like just so many. Um, well, you're forgetting the biggest one, Bang Bang You, which. All right. <laughs> bang, bang, you. Come I on. love that song. It's a great song. And, and you wrote Reason to Live, which is a great song, which was later covered in Canada by Honeymoon Suite, by the way. so I need to get a copy of that. I, I've never heard it. That sounds awesome. Honeymoon Suite. Yes. Yes. Honeymoon Suite doing Reason to Live with um, half the band of Firehouse playing on it. So it, it, it's quite a great version. In fact, uh I'll send it to you if you want. If you, I know after, after please, please. I, I'll send it to you, and, and you can listen to it. It is on iTunes in Canada. I don't know if it's on iTunes in the states. It might be, um, but it's great anyway. But yeah, so okay. Well, let's talk this quick about this uh, kiss connection here. 
Uh, you come in in 79 to write I Was Made for Loving You, like, like you mentioned. And there was this sort of pressure to get a single and a top 10 hit. And Kiss was not one of those single bands, right? They were all about the show and the presentation and the mystique. Uh, talk to me about those writing sessions and, and being, okay, well, I'm the guy from Rouge and now I've got to come and work with Paul Stanley and make them a chart success. Paul Stanley saw our posters, uh, the posters of my group Desmond Child and Rouge, these three gorgeous women, uh, all over New York City and was intrigued and showed up at a little place called Tracks that was underground on 72nd Street. And um, he, you know, of course, because he's a star, he came backstage to say hello. And uh, we made, you know, fast friends and because he loves R&B. You know, and so we had kind of like a R&B style with combined with rock, and uh, it was kind of a fusion. I was trying to reinvent pop music at that time, and I didn't even know it. And so he said, "Hey, why don't why don't we try writing a song together?" So I showed up at a Kiss a rehearsal, and during the break at SIR, there was a big grand piano off to the left. Up, up on the stage, everybody took off, and just he and I were at the piano, and we wrote the song. And um, you know, it was it was like magical experience. And I'm I I was the one that told him, look, do these like you know kind of dramatic chords over disco beat, like just four on the floor, and put heavy guitars on it. And you know, he was like, okay, I'm you know I don't think Gene's gonna like that, but whatever. And Gene never liked it, not to this day. But it's their, you know, biggest international hit. Um, and, you know, I don't know if uh, you saw that movie, Why Him? It's all over it. And there's Gene, like, you know, happy as could be. Great payday. <laughs> you know, so um, uh, that's how that song came to be. And it's a great song. So, all right. Um, I was just talking to you about how with Aerosmith and Bon Jovi, you, you, you felt like the band and they, they, they took you in like no others. Were there ever situations where you were sent out by a record company or, or management brought you in and it just wasn't that? The band just said, hey, you songwriter dude, go sit in the corner and we'll get to you. Was, was there any times where it just it didn't work and, and it just wasn't successful or was it always open arms like, hey, this guy knows what he's doing we need his skill. Well, uh, you know, it, it started out not good with Aerosmith. Just to tell you the truth, I was forced on the band. But I walked in there at a big warehouse where they had set up a stage and there was an army of guitars, a hundred guitars, every kind of sparkle, purple, rainbow colors, uh, you know, strats, left Pauls. I mean, on stands, all in rows, right? Very neat rows. And on the stage was a mic, mic stand strewn with gorgeous, you know, silk scarves. And I walk in, and there's just some roadies around, and I hear some kind of a loop going on backwards. And Stephen, you know, who's, you know, very, you know, he's a people pleaser. He just, you know, very nice. And he kind of, uh, you know, I didn't even say a word yet. He just, hey, hey, come over here. Listen to what we're doing. And so I, I listened to it, and it was like this backwards loop, like, da-da, da-da. And uh, he started singing, cruising for the latest, da-da, da-da, cruising for the latest. And I said, that's really bad. Those are my first words to Aerosmith. And Joe looked at me, crossed his arms. And uh, Stephen, you know, who's very, you know, <laughs> 
he sheepishly said, well, when I first started you know, singing that riff, I was singing, Dude Looks Like a Lady. And I said, what? That's a smash hit title. And Joe said, but we don't know what that means. I said, you know, listen, I'm gay. I know what that means. Let's do this. And, and talked him into telling the story about, you know, because he told me the story of how, how he came up with that. And they had gone after hours with the roadies to a bar and nobody was there, a long row of empty stools. And at the very end, there was this gorgeous platinum blonde, you know, with like you know, black nails and, you know, very curvy. And they were all like drawing straws as to who was going to go over there and say hello. And suddenly, you know, she turns around and it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue. And that's when Stephen said, oh, that dude looks like a lady. Dude looks like a lady, dude, because he loves alliteration. So that's how that title was born. So then I, I said, well, let's follow that, that story. Walked into a bar on the shore. Her picture graced the grime on the door. She was a long lost love at first bite. You know, it's, it goes on and on like that. And then uh, the second verse goes, never judge a book by its cover or who you're going to love by your lover meaning there's total acceptance. The guy doesn't run away. And so then later he goes, you know, my funky lady, I like it, like it, like it, like that. So, I mean, there were, there were people, you know, uh, recently, you know, in this new LGBT movement that were kind of saying, oh, that, that song makes fun of transgender. And it's like, no, man, like, listen to the song, read the lyrics. It's the complete opposite of that. It's total acceptance. But yeah. my point being that it was rocky (laughs) as I was dragging them into my concept. And so, you know, that song reignited their, their career because it brought humor and fun, um, you know, into, you know, a kind of, you know, hard rock genre. And, and also they were, you know, doing a lot of kind of bluesy things that, uh, you know, kind of had a lot of, you know, yeah, but da, but da, but da, but da. So you, so my nickname for Stephen is yeah, but da, but do. And, and I've got, and, and <laughs> like, I've got like Fred Flintstone. Fred Flintstone. And I've got to say uh, that song, dude, in Permanent Vacation, is what got me back into Aerosmith. I grew up listening to Rocks and listening to Nights in the Ruts and all that, and then I got into you know Brian Adams' Cuts Like a Knife and and Huey Lewis Sports, and I just sort of wandered away because they had sort of run out of steam and then i heard dude looks like a lady and i went yeah i'm fucking back that's that's good yeah <laughs> and and i love that album and i it was it was life-changing for me in terms of it's the first cd i ever bought like in terms of you know seed it, it was great um so let me ask you about that because you you go see aerosmith you hear you hear cruising uh cruising the ladies cruising and you say, for the ladies cruising for the ladies and 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 you're like well this kind of sucks sometimes or or in the industry we have something called a song doctor and that's usually somebody who comes in when the record company or management hears the songs and goes wow that sucks and we need some help were you was that a role that you were given as were you a song doctor or were you just hey here's a guy who writes some songs like was it always just let's write songs together or were there times where management and record companies went Wow, that's bad. We need we need Holly. We need you know we need Diane. We need Jim Valens. We need Desmond. We need somebody to help this because. Well, you know, in a way, I was I kind of invented a career for myself because usually 
you know, you know, there always were like songwriting teams, you know, like uh, Jim Balance and Brian Adams and all that. They they always like stuck together. But I I was a I I can't, because of my experience with Kiss um, and the success that we had, I started getting calls to you know go and you know try to help people come up with something that was radio friendly, let's say. But the the thing is, it's that you know it's not that you know I was setting out to write hits because that's not my process. It's like riding a bike and then thinking about it, you fall off. You know, it's just, that's my taste, you know, melodies, you know, great melodies. And I learned so much from my mentor, Bob crew, um, who wrote all those hits with Bob Gaudio for the four seasons. And, you know, I, I spent two years learning, you know, how to rhyme, clean rhymes. I mean, he's the one that told me that rough and enough rhyme, but not enough and love art do not rhyme. It's like, what? Yeah, one's a V sound and one's an F sound. And that subtle difference, you know, made a huge difference to me because he explained that clean rhymes are easier for big stadium audiences to remember and sing along to because they know what the next word's going to be. And so uh, that was a huge um, innovation because many times people that were, you know, in rock bands, they never had formal training, even in music. They just, you know, did everything by ear and they never really studied lyrics and, you know, things like that. And so, you know, alliteration also starting all out with a great title. So like in the case of Dude Looks Like a Lady, all there was was that loop and that title. So to me, that's not Song Doctor. That's like, you know, I, I picked out of the two titles, which was the strongest, and I led them, dragged them into writing about a guy who goes into, you know, uh, um, a nightclub and falls in love with the stage performer who ha- that, that she happened to be a he. And, you know, which was a very unusual thing to write about for a hetero rock band. And so, you know, the the term song doctor started to happen with some of the bands that I wrote with, uh, which shall remain unnamed, because they didn't want to admit that I was co-writing the songs from scratch with them. I mean, I usually, I walk in cold except for a title. I always have something to offer. And either they take it or not, or they have a better title than me. And so, you know, then we just build on that and we do it together because I love, you know, I love the companionship, the camaraderie, the fun, the laughs, the dirty jokes, the coffee breaks, you know, that's what I love. And, you know, I had a lonely childhood childhood. And that's why I was always drawn to collaborate. Well, it's working out. And, and we, we covered some of this stuff in, in the previous interview that we did about six months ago, I guess it was. Um, but I want to get, get to this one album that I know you love, but it didn't get a lot of love from the general public. It, it, it sort of fell under the radar. And it's this Scorpions Humanity Hour One, where you've written every song, you co-produced. Um, talk to me about working with the Scorpions in 2007, because when it's 1985 and 1986, it was just real easy to create something and get it on MTV, and you got all kinds of uh, label support. But here was a band sort of trudging water here by, nine, by 20, uh, 2007. What was it like going into that 
recording session and then just coming up and, and I'm telling you for folks who haven't heard it this album is a solid rock record from start I mean there's not a bad track on it no I mean I consider it one of my top works as I had just finished nine months with Meatloaf um, producing Bad Out of Hell 3 which I also think is a masterpiece and I mean I put everything I had into that into that record and so when we had the rapping the rap party uh the scorpions showed up and we i just liked them they they made friends and then and then they said oh would you want to do our next record and it's like okay but let's do something really different i mean lots of my friends my managers everybody said oh come on don't work with them they're like has-beens you know they do beer halls in germany like forget it and I, i i don't know i just felt something and I, I just believed in them. And, and um, you know, I had rules. I made Klaus go to uh, uh, singing lessons with Eric Vitro. You know, he's like voice coach to the stars. And he studied six months and got his voice back. You know, I mean, it had gotten very rough on the edges. And all of a sudden, I'm hearing those clean tones, you know, from, you know, the early records. Because all it took was a little training. That's not something that rock musicians do. And um, then we put together a songwriting team. It was like a workshop, a kind of a song camp. Because I had always done that for a different artist that I work with, Ricky Martin, Leanne Rimes, uh, American Idol, and all that. And so we, we, we all came to Nashville, and we just like drilled down for a week, you know, a James Michael, Eric Bazilian. Um, I, I can't remember all the incredible people that were on it. And it was like, we were like a team. Well, and uh, you so, had Fredrickson on there too. Yeah. Marty Fredrickson, yeah. you know, the, Scor- the Scorpions. James Michael. Know. And so James Michael, I mean, he's a genius. And mm-hmm. he, you know, co-wrote a lot of songs on Bad Out of Hell 3 with me, like Blind as a Bat. It's like one of the best things I've ever done. And... Um, so, um, you know, we started getting into this. I had met this futurist named Liam Carl, who had this amazing, he was an art director and had these amazing photographs of robots, uh, female models that had like the skin torn off and you could see all the, the wires and, you know, the mechanics underneath. And so I thought, wow, let's, let's do an album where, you know, it's the story of, um, you know, man, man, man against machine. And, you know, we're at the end of the world and they're hiding in a bunker with their, you know, their bots that, you know, are, you know, they've fallen in love with. And, um, and also, you know, I wanted to restyle them to look the part and also this kind of like East German (laughs) kind of look, Um, you know, and I said, okay, no leopard shirts, no cowboy boots, no, like, you know, (laughs) 10 gallon hats, no gold chains, no tight jeans, you know, (laughs) Uh, you know, it it was like a total makeover because it with, with Liam Carl, we kind of had this whole total vision and we followed it through to the end, even down to the, the, the photo shoot, the, the way it was all styled. And, uh, you know, the problem there was really that they didn't have, you know, a real label support and their management didn't get it either. And, you know, they kind of like um, 
had them playing the Ukraine or something. They continued that route instead of re, you know, coming, you know, like really saying, Hey, we are new. This is a special thing. And that's, we, that's why we call the humanity our one, like everything that's happened since the beginning, the dawn of time is still our one, you know? And so I'm looking forward to humanity hour two. So am I. And, and I have to say during your entire answer, I had the song cold running through my head. <laughs> from that album it's such a great song um boy what a great album yeah all right yeah uh let me let me get over to uh, i'm gonna hit you with some of the hard rock heavy metal stuff that you've done um trash by alice cooper 30 years uh celebrating this year out in 1989 you wrote every single song except for maybe uh, only my hard talking you produced it talk to me about that one because here's here's an artist that at the beginning of the 80s crashed and burned, came back, it did great, but with MTV, with Def Leppard, with Bon Jovi, with Kiss all having this success, I, I can imagine that management said, hey, Alice, you got to get on this gravy train too, and then they bring you in. Uh, was there pressure in that album to revive a career, or was it just, no, 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 we're just going to make an album and it'll be what it'll be, and and just talk to me about that album and that performance and having Huey McDonald in there and just that cast of characters. Cause that is such a complete album. Well, I, I was having all these number ones with Aerosmith and, and Bon Jovi and Joan Jett and, um, you know, so Shep Gordon, uh, Alice's manager, you know, he's a very astute businessman. And I don't know if you saw the movie called Mensch, super Mensch. I, I did. Mean, I'm a huge Cooper uh, fan, so I know yeah, so, inside out. So, um, you know, he, he, you know, brought me into it and I met Alice and, you know, f just fell in love with him. I mean, he's the sweetest, most gentlest person, completely opposite his stage image. Right. And he explained that, you know, he's actually Vincent Fournier. Alice Cooper was the name of his band. And then people started calling him Alice Cooper like back in the day. And so he went with it and created this alter ego. His father was a preacher. So he's a very, you know, kind of spiritual, moral person. So if he cuts the head off a doll, then he's got to go right into the guillotine, you know, by the end of the show. And, you know, every, every sin is punished. And so once I understood this and we started writing trash because it's like, um, it's a song cycle. It's a, it's a theatrical piece and all based on, on this, these very strict rules. And, um, it was loads of fun. And, you know, he's, he's not driven like by, you know, anxiety or, or success or anything like that. He does his thing. He loves golf. He's a very relaxed person. He just takes each day, you know, as it comes. You know, and so with me, I mean, I'm super, you know, um, ambitious. I wanted to prove, you know, that, you know, I don't care who it is. I can, I can bring them back. You know, I can reimagine them. Uh, give me a star, share, you know, who hadn't made a record in eight years. You know, you know, give me Joan Jett, who hadn't had a hit, you know, since, you know, I love rock and roll. And, you know, it's like when I have a star, then my imagination just, you know, explodes. 
when it's much harder when you have a blank slate who's won a television contest, you know, and that's the only fame they have. It is. So I'm going to ask you this because I see that we're, we're getting to the 30 minute mark and I don't want to run out of time, but you had discipline in 1991, Desmond Child and Rouge in 79, Runners in the Night, and yet your career as a in front or on stage guy, it, it didn't take off the way maybe that you wanted to or maybe that the way it should have. Looking back on all of this, was there a reason why you, you ended up being a song? Because, I mean, you produce, you write these great songs. Why didn't it work for you as a performer? And ultimately, I guess you won, right? Because it seems to have turned out pretty good. Well, they say I've, you know, all, you know, all artists together that have songs on, I've sold over 500 million actual records and billions of, of downloads, YouTube streams, this and that and the yep. other, and, you know, it's more than any one of the individual acts that I've, I've worked with. And so my music really has touched billions of people all around the planet. They don't even know who wrote it. They don't even know who sang it, but they know the song. And so, you know, for me, it's been very fulfilling in that way. Um, but you see, what happened with me is that while I was in Desmond Child and Rouge, which I had co-founded with, co-founded with my girlfriend at, at the time, Maria Vidal, um, you know, I, I realized at, from make, after during the, making the first album that I was really way more gay than I was bi. You know, I was kind of fancied myself like a androgynous Jagger, Bowie, Lou Reed, something uh, that was kind of like, you know, cool because I was a rock star. I could do anything, sleep with anybody and all like that. But I was just a kid. And then all of a sudden I started maturing with the real needs and a real, you know, emotions. And I realized that, you know, as much as I, you know, loved Maria and still like, madly in love with her and she's the godmother of of my sons um you know that wasn't going to work you know and so that's what runners in the night is all about and the first song on it's called the truth comes out you know so i i was out and uh you know i think that um you know i waited a couple of years in you know hoping that john landau who's bruce springsteen's manager would manage me. I mean, I would meet with him and he would give me advice. And I, I was kind of waiting on the side and I waited like two years and, uh, you know, I lost my confidence and, uh, I started working with Bob crew who is, you know, uh, Scorpio and I'm a Scorpio. And so because I'm a Scorpio, he took me in and, uh, we spent two years and we wrote 38 songs, but that was, you, you know, songwriting, university for me. And so it was, that was kind of like those, you know, the early eighties was kind of like a cold period for me. And, you know, of course, you know, I had heavens on fire popped out, you know, and things like that. But it, after I worked with Bob crew, that's when all, all these hits started to happen. And so in the back of my mind, I'm saying, yeah, I'm going to have all these hits and then I'm going to come out with my solo record, which I did discipline. But, you know, by that time, there were a lot of, uh, you know, company politics. I was signed by Bob Krasnow to Elektra Records. And, you know, he was, you know, having difficulties. He was being, you know, uh, sabotaged by the people that worked for him and uh, eventually, you know, pushed out of the way. 
And, um, you know, so I kind of, because I was his signing, you know, I, I worked hard on that record and really there's really good stuff on it. I was out on the road, but I didn't get tour support. So I was, you know, playing state fairs just on a little piano. I mean, <laughs> it, it was, it, it, it wasn't really set up right. And right during that time, rock died. All of a sudden MTV played, you know, it smells like teen spirit. And it, it was like, almost like Elvis must have felt when he saw the Beatles. It was like all the bands I work with instantly became legacy bands, you know, you know, not so much Bon Jovi. They like kept creating and kept going forward and they had their own market, but it was like, wow, you know, these guys that were art students that could play three chords and have hair drop dropping in front of their face, the shoegazers with these drony songs that had absurd lyrics and, you know, all pulled in. It was the opposite of what we were creating. These guys that would stand there and, you know, like, you know, Freddie Mercury with their arms out and take in a whole stadium. You know, it was the complete, you know, polar opposite. And so it was during that time that, you know, I was like, and my record didn't take off. I had heard some music that sounded like Bon Jovi, but it had a twang. And I found out it was Garth Brooks. So I got on a plane and I was, you know, received very beautifully by Celia Froelich, who's the head of EMI where I was signed. And um, she set me up with writing sessions and I wrote with, uh, I said, I'm going to get a cut by Garth Brooks. So I wrote with Victoria Shaw, who had co-written The River with, with him. And um, I, w- you know, the first song I wrote was Where Your Road Leads. And she got it cut by Garth and Trisha, which is the song that, you know, sparked the love, you know, magic between them. And uh, the rest is history. So um, my husband and I decided, you know, to, you know, build a cabin and then we've been adding to the cabin and now it's like a 6,000 square foot, you know, cabin (laughs) where we've raised our sons, Roman and Nero. And now they're in high school and and so I've loved every minute of being in Nashville because it's a music town where the songwriter is king. And, you know, I had we had moved twice to L.A. and left because after a while, there's kind of like a burnout. You know, it's like, well, what hit did you have last night? You know, not even last week. I mean, it's like your self-esteem gets really, um, you know, I'm obviously very thin skinned, you know, it was like in Nashville, people remembered, you know, that I wrote those songs with the bands that inspired them. You know, I mean, there isn't a, a country act that doesn't know my songs, you know? And so I love being here and, um, you know, that's the, that's a story. And, and, um, you know, I do a lot of other things, you know, at one point we moved to Miami and that's where I met Ricky Martin. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to bring the arena rock, you know, that I learned from Kiss, Aerosmith, and, and Bon Jovi to Latin music and succeeded there. And so that's, that's the thing. To me, I don't, you know, I, I call myself genre fluid. You know, because Which I don't makes really, sense. And because the- I don't really think about genre. I think about the story. I think about the message. And then we dress it in the style of that the artist wants to perform. Yes. And uh, let me just catch up on a few things there because you mentioned Nirvana and, and yes, they were the polar opposite of everything that you did. They, you were good. 
<clears throat> and so I'll say, I'll leave it at that. Uh, you mentioned uh, Roman and Nero, the uh, documentary to the story of Roman and Nero, uh, which came out a few years ago. Uh, we talked about it last time, actually. It, it is truly heartwarming. It is such a great story. Um, you know, you don't have a, you don't have to be a music fan to go just see uh, the love and, and the warmth. And that, it's just, it's just a great uh, documentary. So I, I do encourage people to see that. And, and you're right about being um, not gender fluid, but well, genre fluid. Because as you listen to this genre de- fluid, genre fluid. As we listen to this Desmond Child live album, you go from living on a prayer to you give, you love God, but you, know, you give love a bad name. Angel, I was made for loving you, and you get down to the La Vida Loca and stuff, and it just sounds like one fluid album. It's not like oh, okay, now he's doing the country stuff. Oh, now he's doing the. It you don't hear that. It goes. All the way through, and you just go, wow, that's, that's just a great album. And you, you you can hear the elements of what you've written, and it's just like, wow. Uh, like, And I was telling my friend uh, from the uh, radio station before, I was just like, when you hear La Vida Loca and you hear a kid, you go, wow, these are all different songs. But when you hear this on this live album, you go, oh, this is an artist with a vision. It, it's it's just really, it's it's brilliant. It's, it's a brilliant album. Um, well, it's all part of this kind of, trilogy i'm making the the album came first i got my feet wet i've i've been co-writing my autobiography with david ritz and it's called living on a prayer big songs big life well which will be out in the spring and at the same time we're making a career documentary based on my autobiography so uh you know that's not the cuba libre i'll be back right that's not the cuba libre that's something different No, cuba libre is 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 working i mean it's going forward i mean it's been a long project collaborated with david sigerson and it's the true story of my family before and after the cuban revolution it's a broadway show and i'm also producing co-producing uh transcon the making of lou perlman and the boy band revolution and it's a story of the 500 million dollar Ponzi scheme the bank rolled you know the whole you know o town explosion with you know the backstreet boys and in sync and um it's like um that's been you know in the making for many many years, and the story only gets better as people keep coming out and and telling their 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 version of it and so i I got together with pressman film uh with gentle giant with uh Anton Partners, and my collaborator on that is Andreas Carlson, who co-wrote Bye Bye Bye, and I want it that way. So the thing is, is that I sort of got sick of going around with a song in my hand and, and saying, hey, will you please cut my song? And I'm like one of five writers. You know, I said, you know what? I want to be a buyer, not a seller. I want to be the one that chooses the songs that goes into you know, these mega projects. And so that's why I hustled and started, you know, trying to do these big entertainments. Yeah, um, I see that we're over our time. So I'm going to ask you one question, if I can. Uh, you were told by Diane Warren, why are you going to go work with Hanson? It's a nine-year-old kid. You were told by whoever, don't go work with Aerosmith or a Legacy Act. You were told, don't go work with uh, 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 Ricky Martin. What are you doing? Um what do you make of all that advice that you were given and why did you not give in to the advice and go, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't go right with a nine-year-old kid. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't go work with it. And why did you just sort of say, hey, the heck with this. I'm going to go do this because I believe in this. I, I just have always been willful, you know, and, you know, think about this. I mean, I grew up in the projects of Liberty City. 
um, we were Cuban, you know, refugees and I was gay. So I had like three things and poor, we were poor. I mean, it was like, like so poor. My mom's beat up car didn't have gas in it. And so I got it in me that when she was a songwriter, I got it in me that I was going to be successful, whatever it took, because I wanted to be able to take care of my mom. I mean, her dream was to have a hit with one of the Latin artists that she was writing for. And we could move to a mansion on Miami Beach. And I made her dream come true. Yeah. So that's why I don't give up. And I, one of my skills is I see stars around everybody. I have to pull away from like any kid that comes over. I can see them. I can see like stars around them. And then I, I know what to do to fix them, you know, to, to encourage them to, to, to bring out their specialness. But I don't, there aren't that many, you know, years in a life to do everything like that, you know? So I just have, you know, kind of gone with my instinct. And, you know, like I said, when somebody has already built a following or has an image, it's not even a following because followers leave, but has, you know, a distinct personality. Uh, Last year I was asked to write a song for Barbara Streisand and I, I solely wrote a song for her called Lady Liberty, which is on her latest album, Walls. And it, she wanted to be, you know, singing about things that matter to her, not just love songs. And so I, I recalled her on that tugboat in Funny Girl going in front of the Statue of Liberty and she had like a bouquet of flowers, you know, holding, holding it up and you saw the Statue of Liberty with the torch and you, that, that, that image of the two of them, the strong women, you know, it was like, boom, she has to sing an ode to the Statue of Liberty, and it's called Lady Liberty. So, you know, it's like <laughs> Barbara Streisand goes beyond, you know, like she's like Frank Sinatra, you know. She's like she's Elvis. The, did, did people she, tell you not to work with her, by the way? Did they say, hey, yeah, don't, don't work with Barbara? <laughs> I sort of did it under the wire, and suddenly, boom, <laughs> there it was. I didn't, yeah. I didn't let anybody say no. Yeah, don't take the because advice on that. Who one. who who would say no to Barbara? Well, nobody. Nobody. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so many more questions. I mean, we haven't uh, talked about Spotify. The last time you said that there was like five billion plays of Living on a Prayer, and you got like a six thousand dollar check. Has mm-hmm. has any steps been made to rectify that? Because I'll tell yes. you. Okay. Yes, we, we got passage of the. You know, I'm on the board of ASCAP, and the whole industry came together. And uh, we got passage of the Music Modernization Act, and um, it was a fantastic thing. It was unopposed, you know, in this day and age, you know, to have both the Democrats and the Republicans agree on something. And, you know, President Trump signed it into law. And so that's eventually, you know, it's not overnight. It's going to start lifting our rates. And so, you know, we can't make a living off of this. And we're not the artists that can sell tickets and merchandise and, you know, all these goodies and all this kind of stuff. You know, a a working songwriter in Nashville used to be able to make, you know, support a family having a a cut, you know, not even a single, just a cut on a Garth Brooks record. But no longer because it's, you know, people just download one song and then they put it on the playlist and, you know, they're not listening to albums in their entirety like you do. 
Um, and so, um, that's the whole, that's the whole point. You know, it's sort of like, um, we have to keep, you know, doing things to try to get people to understand that what we create, it belongs to us. And, you it know, I, I, you know, sometimes, you know, with uh, Grammy in the schools, I've gone and we, we put out uh, paper and we get the kids, little kids to draw on the paper. And then we said, okay, now in the left-hand corner, put uh, right, copyright and put your name. And now hold it up. That drawing belongs to you. you and you, only you. It, and I'll say this because when I talk to the artists and I, you know, talk to the guitarist of the band or the singer, you know, I talk to Joe Perry or whatever. They all say the new business model is put something out, whether it's an EP and then tour and then it's the, the sell the merch, sell the merch, sell it. You make all your money on the tour with the merch, but for the Holly Knights, for the Desmond Childs, for the, it's like, well, well, like you just said, you don't get to do that. You don't get to have a, a tour at Madison Square Garden and sell the merch. So where do we go from here with songwriters? I mean, it, it's going to well, be a dying craft. Well, when I first got to Nashville, um, you know, in pursuit, you know, desperately seeking Garth Brooks, uh, there were 5,000 writers signed to publishing companies, large and small, within the 440 circle. And last count, I think last year, I think there were like 267 signed writers, writers with contracts. And think about the fact that, you know, because of the way that radio set up, you know, just a handful of people get played and usually they're co-writing their own songs. So if you're not in with them, you're not on the record. So, you know, it, the, the business has really shrunk, you know, and um, the, there are people that are, you know, have just sharpened their survival skills and they just, they're killing it. You know, Hillary Lindsay, you know, Shane McAnally, um, I mean, they're just, you know, Craig Weissman. I mean, there's, you know, so many, uh, not so many, there's like two hands. You can count the people that, that are getting the cuts. So, you know, it's, it's getting that way in pop too. You know, if you're not part of the right tribe, you're not getting on the record. So, you know, what, what happens is survival of the fittest. So the sharpest, the best, the, 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 the most ambitious, the ones that have follow through, not only talent, the ones that are hustling, you know, nonstop and creating, you know, that are working 24 seven, they're the ones that are going to get on the records. They also have to attend every, you know, music event and, and get in with the A&R people, with the executives, with the managers, with the lawyers, and they're finding every which way to get their song to Carrie Underwood. You got to play the game. You got to play the game. It's uh, well, it's a career. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's serious now because it's a privilege to work in any art because it's not, you know, at a, in a cubicle, you know, typing away, you know, you know, nine, oh, to, nine five. to five. And you also look like um, somebody like Jim Valance who wrote a uh, pretty woman on Broadway, which is a way to sort of stay active without having to hustle for I need a song on the new Brian Adams album. I need a song on the new whatever. So it's, you know, they're, yeah, they're, that's anyway. what I'm doing. Yeah. And so, and so the thing is, is that if you love music, there's no B plan, you know, there's no B plan. 
you got to go for it because it's, you, you just figure it out. You know, and that's the advice that I give young creators. But, you know, if you go to a school like, you know, Berkeley School of Music, uh, Musicians Institute in L.A., or, uh, Belmont, they have programs and, and you learn everything about the business and then you find your place in it. You might end up being an A&R person, but you can actually write songs. You can actually produce records. You can, you know, be at a be a publisher. You can sign your own writers. You can do anything. You know, you may not be a star, but you'll find your place. You will. And uh, we're we're twenty minutes over. I could go on about you know Rat Detonator and Crazy Nights and and Bob Crew and and his advice about just start with a great title. Well, let's do it again sometime. How Abs- about that? Absolutely. We've done it twice. When my, so when my book comes out, I'll talk to you night and day. Oh, about my stories. I can't wait. And uh, just remind the folks here, Desmond Child Live. I have it right in front of me. I bought it, by the way. I did not get a promo copy. I'm more than happy to support. It is... Um, Thank you. And could I invite um, your listeners to follow me on Instagram? Yes. At Desmond.Child, because I am hooked on this Instagram. My family's like yelling at me, like, get off the phone. When your kids are telling you to get off the phone at the dinner table, you know you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, well, but you're on I Instagram, and I love your Twitter as well, so follow both of those, and uh, folks, go buy this album. Amazon has it. I bought it. It was only like 17 bucks or whatever. Well worth the money. And, is that uh, how much it is? I think so. I think it was 17 I can tell you, actually. <laughs> I, have my, I have my Amazon. I have no idea. I have it's my like, Amazon. Really? Hold on. There's a chance I might make some money. Here, hold on. I've got my Amazon right in front of me. I will quickly do this. Uh, I've got to switch it over to Canada because I'm in Canada. Let me see here. My orders. Let me, I'll tell you exactly how much I paid for this sucker. Uh, Desmond Child, Desmond Child. I paid. I paid. Uh, uh, why is it so complicated to pull up an order? One sec. Give me two seconds. I'm going to type in Desmond. And I'll, I'll tell you exactly how much I paid for this thing. And then I'll edit all of this out. So, Desmond, here we go. Uh, view order details. Here we are. I paid uh, fourteen ninety two plus tax. I paid seventeen fifteen for it. Wow. There you I'm go. I'm honored. Yes. Thank you so much. And I had pre-ordered it even before we had any questions about an interview. I said, no, I want to I have this. I want to hear the songwriter's versions of some of my favorite songs. Angel, brilliant song from Aerosmith. You Give Love a Bad Name is what turned me into a Bon Jovi fan and got me off of my Huey Lewis, Brian Adams, Cuts Like a Knife, and got me back into hard rock. And so the, the stuff you've written has changed my life if it hasn't been for uh, you give love a bad name dude looks like a, i might not be doing this today because i might have just gone down the path of listening to beethoven and just sort of faded off into the so you know i owe what i do to you basically and, and that's sincere because these well, songs I, got I me really back. enjoy being on rock talk with you mitch and yes. thank you so much and and let's let's do it again Absolutely. Always a pleasure. And yes, when the book comes out, and hopefully it'll be out soon, uh, on le fait encore. And as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Merci beaucoup. Bonsoir. Good night. Cheers. Bonsoir. 
Here's Paul Stanley to tell you why he doesn't want to shake your hand. Some people might have a little rock and roll pneumonia. Ugh, not even cold gin will kill those germs. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon.